We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. 19th play of the drive is going to put the game away. Touchdown, Gibson. 100% the right decision by Ron Rivera there to go for the fourth and goal at the end of the game. There was some debate about should they kick the field goal to go up seven? No. That was a no-brainer. That was... Who cares if we miss? There's no chance they're going 99 yards down four with 29 seconds and no timeouts. In fact, I don't even think they would have gotten into position from their own one-yard line to throw a Hail Mary. You kick the field goal and they start at the 25 with 29 seconds left, that's a big difference. Now the chances that they will get at least to midfield for a chance at a Hail Mary are, are much higher uh, and then maybe even more than just a, a Hail Mary. Terrific decision, smart decision by Ron Rivera. They sealed it on that one. And then I've got to give him credit, too, because I think maybe, you know, maybe a quarter of the coaches in the league, I don't know, maybe a third of the coaches in the league, would have known that the right play was to not attempt the point after touchdown after the Gibson fourth and goal touchdown run. The, the reason that you don't attempt a PAT, and kudos to Ron and his staff for understanding this, because, again, I don't think many coaches would have done this. I think most coaches would have sent their, PA, sent their kicker out there, kicked the PAT, 30-19, to 19, boom, game over. They wouldn't have thought about the ramifications of a blocked kick that got returned for a two-point conversion to make it 29-21. That's really the only chance the, the uh, Buccaneers had in that spot was to block the extra point and they've had some kicks blocked in recent weeks Washington has not this kicker yesterday Joey Sly Um, but kudos to Ron and his staff for really understanding the math in that situation and the probability in that situation Um, very few coaches I believe in the league would have really known uh, how to do that I think Ron and his staff have been, for the most part, much better than I thought they would be at the area of the game that I probably uh, get the most wrapped up into, as many of you know, which would be kind of clock and score management. I think they've been pretty good at it, this year in particular. I'm sure you'll you know, tweet me with a couple of examples where I ripped them for something, and I, I'm sure that's true. I can't think of any right off the top of my head. Um, but I really love the decision. There was no other decision on fourth and goal, and the decision not to go for the PAT was really smart. Uh, How about the NFL? 
guys and gals. I mean, seriously, this league, it never, ever disappoints when it comes to when you least expect it. I didn't see that one coming. Um, But then again, I mean, I didn't see some of them coming last week. Some of these big dogs winning outright. Listen to this stat, which I saw Nikki Javala from the Washington Post put out yesterday. In the last two weeks, eight teams, eight with 500 or below winning percentages, have defeated teams that began the week as a division leader or tied for first place in their division. Last week, it was the Broncos over the Cowboys. It was the Jags over the Bills in that shocker. The Chiefs uh, last week knocked off the Packers. And the Giants last week knocked off the Raiders. Yesterday, it was the Panthers knocking off a depleted Arizona team. No Kyler Murray, no DeAndre Hopkins. Um, The Dolphins on Thursday night knocked off the Ravens. The Vikings knocked off the Chargers, who were tied for first. And Washington stunned Tampa Bay yesterday as a a 9.5 or 10-point underdog. This league is week to week. It's something that I have been saying, and many of you agree, I'm not saying that it's you know a major revelation. This is the one league that the line between the te- two teams in competition is so fine. It's so close. And we see every single week anything is possible. And to think that, and really, unless you've got the franchise quarterback, the elite franchise quarterback, that there's going to be any kind of consistency from one year to the next, forget about it. Because there's no consistency from one week to the next. How about the fact that the Dallas Cowboys last week had a goose egg on the scoreboard with five minutes to go, getting shut out by Denver 30 to nothing in their home stadium. And then yesterday, against a team that beat the Saints last week, the Falcons, the Cowboys were up 36 to three at halftime and won 43 to three. How about last week? Buffalo could only score six points against Jacksonville. Six. And they blew out the Jets 45 17. The Jets, who had beaten and upset the Bengals two weeks ago. This league, you can never figure out, and I'm telling you, it seems like I say this every year, this year in particular, who's the best team right now? Who are the best teams? It is wide open. Now, maybe we saw something from Kansas City last night. Maybe we saw, you know, everybody else in the AFC West, you know, letting Kansas City hang around, and last night they put up their best performance since the very beginning of the year when uh, Patrick Mahomes was 35 of 50 for 406 yards and five touchdowns and a 41-14 route of the Raiders. And so, so now all of a sudden the Chiefs are back and first in the AFC West. And maybe over the final you know seven weeks, seven, eight weeks of the season, maybe they'll prove to be the best team in the AFC. They certainly have the, the talent on offense anyway. Um, the Titans still have the best record. Do you think they're the best team in the AFC? The Ravens just lost to the Dolphins and should have lost to the Vikings at home. Pittsburgh had a chance to tie for the AFC North lead, and they tied Detroit yesterday. Buffalo lost to Jacksonville last week, and here come the New England Patriots in the AFC East. 
The Patriots have won four in a row. They've won five of their last six. And their last two losses were to the Buccaneers 1917 on that Sunday night Tom Brady returned to Foxborough game. And 35-29 in overtime to the Cowboys. By the way, Mac Jones now right back with Jamar Chase for the Offensive Rookie of the Year uh, possibilities. I mean, the NFC is nuts right now. I personally now believe, after watching Green Bay yesterday, that they may be the best defensive team in the NFC. Carolina's pretty close, um, but they have Aaron Rodgers. Uh, I think the Packers, this could be their year. Um, but who knows? Because it changes every week. I thought Tampa was the best team. You know, Arizona has looked like the best team. Now, Arizona has not had their best players the last two weeks. We see the Rams tonight. More on that in a second. The NFC East, I mean, it's still the Cowboys right now by three and a half games over the Eagles, who are playing much better. The race for the wild card in the in both conferences is going to be nuts. Right now, the five, six, and seven positions in the AFC are all wide open, and there are 12 teams basically competing for those three wildcard spots. In the NFC, for those three wildcard spots, and really it's two if you assume that the NFC West runner-up is going to snag the first wildcard, whether it's the Rams or the Cardinals, Um, For spots six and seven, you basically, if you take the three-win teams and say they're in in contention, well, 15 teams in the NFC for two spots. New Orleans holding down the sixth spot right now at five and four. They're struggling, and the Panthers are five and five. Who really believes in them? I believe in them defensively. And now we'll see whether or not Cam Newton can become Cam Newton again. More on the NFL coming up. Uh, in the final segment of the show today. But the league is nuts, and Washington-Tampa proved it. You know, we surmised last week, Tommy and I did, or maybe it was me with somebody else, um, we were, were trying to guess, excuse me, you know, the big underdog winners this week. I really, I gave Washington out in the smell test, and by the way, the smell test, 7-0 and this week, going into tonight's game with the 49ers plus four as the final smell test play of the weekend. You didn't think that I was going to go through the year and just be many games under 500. Come on. I knew a hot streak was coming. I won last week. I didn't see 8-0 this week or 7-1. and I hope it's 8-0. Uh, by the way, I got this, um, I got this tweet from Jay. <clears throat> Let me find this because I want to read it. Here it is. Um, your record over the years when you have Washington as a smell test pick is ridiculous. Why don't you just why don't you just use their games for the smell test? Uh, well, I can't do that because they don't fit the smell test every week. I just give you the games that do fit the smell test criteria. Um, and yes, last week, uh, and I forget if I had Aaron do this or Greg um, Huff. Um, my radio producer at the time. I forget who I had go back, but I knew that my record in smell test games involving Washington, not not having Washington as the pick, but just uh, games involving Washington, whether it was a smell test selection on their opponent or on them, it was, I think, 72% over the years on games involving Washington. Look, I think that's kind of an aberration and a little bit lucky. Um, But I was 0-2 this year 
because I I gave out um, Washington against the Chiefs and the Packers, and they didn't get it done. But I did give them out yesterday um, against Tampa as one of my eight uh, picks. 3-0 college, 4-0 in the NFL yesterday with San Francisco pending tonight. An 8-0 weekend would be huge, would be really huge for me. Um, because even though I advocate against doing this stuff every once in a while, I do it. After going 3-0 and on Saturday, I did, um, I did take my NFL five picks and put them together in a what we call a five-team parlay. So I have the 49ers tonight for a boatload of cash. Now, I will likely hedge hard by playing the Rams and maybe buying it down to three because I've got the 49ers plus four. Um, to make sure that I win regardless of the result. Uh, But my winnings, if San Francisco covers on the five-team parlay, $4,752. San Francisco plus four is worth to me tonight. Again, I will hedge out of that. Um, uh, I will put a bunch on the Rams so that I win regardless of the result. I'll win a little bit less on the parlay bet if the 49ers cover, um, but I won't lose money uh, if the Rams cover. Although I really do like the 49ers tonight, plus the four. I have no idea how they'll do it, but then again, I had no idea how the Saints would cover or how Washington would cover or how Minnesota would cover or how the Eagles would cover, and those were all winners yesterday. Um, Enough about that. Uh, It was just an incredible... Um, incredible uh, couple of weeks in the NFL yesterday included, and I think it's going to get crazier down the stretch. But that was a huge win, a huge win um, in front of what was clearly the biggest crowd of the year. I had a couple of people text me saying, by far and away the biggest crowd of the year. Lots of Bucks fans, lots of 12 jerseys, Brady jerseys. But you could see it on TV. There were actually people sitting in the club level. You could see that on TV, and that's been pretty much empty um, most of the uh, most of the year. Um, my game take is coming up uh, here shortly. I did here in the opening segment want to take um, a moment to <clears throat> talk about Sam Huff. Sam Huff passed away. Most of you know that from over the weekend. Um, what a life Sam Huff had. Uh, I thought about a lot of things when I saw the news break on Saturday. There are a lot of great stories told. Um, CJ, uh, our good friend and longtime producer and program director at 980, um, put out an Instagram, and I actually retweeted his Instagram post. Um, it's interesting because all of us that have worked at the station, none of us really remember Sam as a player. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Scott Lynn might remember Sam Huff's career as a player. Um, He was the oldest of of all of us. And maybe Andy. Maybe Andy remembers Sam Huff's career as a player. But most of us know Sam as a broadcaster. Um, And Sam as a broadcaster was part of the most iconic booth in local team sports history. And that was Frank, Sonny, and Sam during the glory years. It's not an exaggeration for those of you who are younger when you're, you know, your parents or your older siblings or uncles or aunts tell you that people would turn down the TV and turn the radio up. That's 100% true. People wanted to listen to Frank, Sonny, and Sam call those games during the 70s 
and 80s. And that's how most of us know Sam Huff. And I thought of, you know, um, I thought of Sonny when I heard the news. And I bet a lot of people, especially those of you who know the connection that they had for so long, um, and, uh, and, and the, the incredible professional chemistry, um, that they had. Uh, and you know, there were for us, I mean, I had the opportunity to host the pregame show for 13 years. I'm not making this about me. I'm just using it as a way to, to tell you a little bit about Sam and Sam was, you know, Sonny and Sam were guests every week on the pregame show. Now, Sam was not a guest on the pregame show for the last couple of years because he was eventually off the broadcast. He was diagnosed with dementia in 2013. Um, but God is someone who grew up in this town and who, you know, um, uh, the team was such a big part of my life to be able to do that each week, to be able to have a conversation with Sam Huff and Sonny Jurgensen on the pregame show every single week was such such a privilege. And when I would do the pregame show from the stadium and from the booth, many times for Monday night games or Thursday night games or Sunday night games, I would do it from the booth. And to be able to sit there before the show started and hang out with Sonny and talk to Sonny or or to talk to Sam, it was so much fun. Um, my conversations with Sonny, I'll never forget um, over the years. Um, they were always so kind and so um, warm. I mean, Sam's a tough guy, don't get me wrong, but I think he really enjoyed doing those games, and I think he re- really enjoyed game day. Um, I, several of us, Andy and I and Zabe and Doc and, um, you know, a lot of us had the opportunity, you know, multiple times a year to do various events where we would sort of be the moderator for, for, uh, for Sonny and Sam. Um, and I did a bunch of those for, I don't know, six, seven years. Uh, they were so much fun. Um, the, the stories about Sam, the, the two that, that come to mind are at Soldier Field back in, I don't know what year it was, 2011, 2010, something like that, 2009. He literally, uh, swung at a dude and smacked a dude from, uh, the, from the booth, um, out of the window. Cause a guy was mouthing off and Sam had had enough and just, he punched him. Um, and then there's the story CJ told on Instagram. He wrote, and this is a story that CJ had written back in 2014 about Sam after I think that was the end of Sam on the broadcasts. Um, he wrote <clears throat> six years ago, I was in the booth in Lincoln financial field with Sonny, Sam and Larry. Sal Palantonio had just come out with a book naming Sam Huff as the most overrated linebacker in NFL history. Sam was fuming the entire trip, knowing that Sal would be in Philly covering the game for ESPN. With some four-letter words, Sam told us to let him know if we knew where Sal was. He was intense and dead serious. So there we, there we are, sitting in the booth a couple of hours before kickoff, and the ESPN pregame show is on the TV with sound. Sam isn't paying attention to it until he hears, I'm Sal Palantonio. Sam jumped right up with his fists clenched and steam coming from his ears, thinking that Sal had just walked into the booth. He was ready to take Sal's head off. We had to jump up and calm his blood pressure down and explain that Sal was just on TV. At 74, Sam was still a gladiator. Classic moment. And then CJ adds, by the way, the Skins won in Philadelphia on that particular Sunday. Uh, The other thing real quickly about Sam Huff, and I don't think everybody knows this because um, 
we all, you know, here in this town remember him as part of the booth and the broadcaster for, you know, basically 40 plus years um, calling Washington uh, games um, with uh, with Frank and Sonny and then eventually Larry and Sonny as well. Um, so he's a giant. He's a New York giant. I have friends that I went to college with who I have other friends who are New Yorkers who are giant fans. I remember on two different occasions over the years being at events up in New York. One was in Connecticut. One was in New York. And um, uh, the father of a friend of, of mine came up to me and said, uh, I hear you do uh, the Redskins radio stuff. And I said, I, I do. And he said, do you ever get a chance to talk to Sam Huff? I, I said, I do every week. He said, oh, and he just started on Sam Huff. See, this was, um, you know, a story that was big here, obviously, because of all the years he spent in the booth. It was big for the league. I saw it on all the pregame shows yesterday. But Sam Huff was a New York Giant. That's where he had his Hall of Fame career. Sam Huff was a four-time Pro Bowler as a Giant. He was a two-time first-team All-Pro. He was on the All-50s decade team as the middle linebacker of the New York Giants, a defense coached by Tom Landry, an offense coached by Vince Lombardi, who would you know, bring him, uh, not bring him to D.C., but make him a, a co- you know, coach in that 69 season. Um, Sam Huff was a New York Giant more than he was a Washington Redskin as a player. And New York yesterday, especially people of a different generation, an older generation, um, were, were, you know, definitely, uh, you know, grieving slash, you know, thinking nostalgically about the Sam Huff days. He was the first great defensive middle linebacker and his battles with Jim Brown were legendary. He played in what is still referred to as the greatest game in NFL history, the 58 championship game, the Johnny Unitas, Allen Amici, 23-17 nationally televised game that really made the NFL um, begin to be the obsession of America. But Sam was a legend in New York. I, I think that was that's just a point I wanted to make because I don't think everybody understands that. I mean, he's one of the all-time great giants. And John Mara, the owner of the, um, of the Giants yesterday, put out the following statement. Quote, Sam was one of the greatest Giants of all time. He was the heart and soul of our defense in his era. He almost single-handedly influenced the first chance of defense, defense, in Yankee Stadium. Closed quote. That from John Mara, the Giants president. Um, legend in New York. An obvious broadcasting legend as much as anything else in Washington. Um, and Sam Huff, uh, rest in peace. And our sympathies out to his family uh, and close friends uh, as well. Uh, okay, let's get to the game take. Uh, we will do that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pay attention, here's Kevin's Game Take. And the Game Take today, presented by MyBookie. From all the biggest games to the smallest events, make every bet worth your while with MyBookie. Start by doubling your first deposit instantly with MyBookie's first deposit bonus. Double your money before you even place a bet. All you've got to do is sign up and deposit using my exclusive promo code, KevinDC, at MyBookie. MyBookie is at MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. And I've mentioned this before, when you sign up for the first time, if there is a code already written in the promo code section, just erase it and write KevinDC. Uh, big football games coming up, college and pro this coming weekend. They'll have it all at my bookie. They've got all of the college basketball. They've got all of the NBA. They've got all the hockey. The caps have been on a roll. Don't wait any longer. Head to my bookie today to redeem your double deposit bonus. You can get in the game, start winning today. That's promo code Kevin DC to receive double your first deposit instantly in your account. No hassle, no wait. And as always, you may have a site and where uh, in which you are gambling on right now uh if you're doing this right you should have two sites minimum minimum uh and my bookie's giving you free money to sign up why wouldn't you do that uh it is a fair site fair point spreads fair pricing you get paid when you win um these are all important things uh go to my bookie mybookie.ag or mybookie.com and use my promo code kevin dc all right, uh, let's start with the list of things that I liked from the game. I want to start with, real quickly before I get to that, just an overview. Because to me, this game wasn't very difficult to figure out. 29-19 Washington. Um, the game, if you were to describe it uh, with brevity, you would say the Bucks didn't play well and Washington did. And that's the truth. You know, the Bucks did not play well. They were missing players, as was Washington. They were missing some key players on offense, and they didn't play well with what they had. Um, Washington was missing players as well. Washington offensively had been productive in recent games moving the football but not finishing drives. Well, they finished just enough yesterday. Washington defensively has had one of the worst seasons in the league this year, uh, and yesterday was its best day by miles. Taylor Heineke had struggled more than not struggling over the last four games. He played his best game of, of the year under pressure um, a lot of the time, took big hit time and time again, hung in there, and made plays all day long, typically on really important down-and-distance situations where his team needed him the most. The win is going to make some of you dreamers dream. That's okay. That used to be me. Three and six, an NFC that will likely see a team, maybe two, in the wild card spots, uh, six and seven, with eight and nine records, nine and eight records. Who knows? Maybe less. A win next week at Carolina 
would actually, um, I mean, literally would put them in the mix if you don't think they're there already. Now, I don't think they're a very good team. I don't think they're going to be a playoff contender down the stretch. But if they go to Carolina and win at 4-6, and they're going to be very much back in the conversation. They are an early three-point underdog against Carolina on Sunday. All right, the list of things that I liked. Number one on the list of things that I liked from the game yesterday uh, was the final drive for Washington in the game. It was the longest drive of the NFL season. 19 plays, 80 yards, 10 minutes and 26 seconds. They took over at their own 20 with 10 minutes and 50 seconds left with the score 23 to 19 after a Tampa touchdown and yes Tampa missed that extra point then they smacked DeAndre Carter on the kickoff return and it seemed like Washington was in big trouble and then came the drive of the year for Washington you know they had a third and two right out of the gate from their own 28 yard line and Taylor Heineke keeps it on a scramble moves the sticks then they've got a a third and one at the Tampa Bay 33-yard line. That followed a big play from Heineke to McLaurin on a first and 10 um, play, uh, and then um, a couple of good runs by Gibson. Uh, By the way, I'll get to Scott Turner. I thought his play calling on the last drive um, was exceptional, staying balanced, staying true to what he had been all day long. Um, But there they were, third and one. Gibson takes it. They move the sticks. That's the second third down conversion. Clock's now really becoming a factor because Washington's put – Two third-down conversions together. Um, There are now four minutes uh, left in the game, and Tampa Bay starting to use their timeouts, using them kind of early. Kind of like that, actually, uh, on Bruce Arians um, from Bruce Arians' standpoint. Then a third and four, one of the best throws Heineke I thought made all day. Um, By the way, a lot of his throws all day long were made against the Blitz. And he puts that third and fourth throw decisive quickly right on Adam Humphreys. They move the sticks, first and 10 at the Tampa 20. Now Tampa's calling more timeouts. All right. Washington's got a third and five at the Tampa Bay 15. Three minutes and five seconds left after Tampa's final timeout. Tampa's got to get the stop right here. If they get the stop right here, they're going to get the ball back down 26-19 if the field goal's, field goal's good. And they're going to have plenty of time, even without timeouts, to get down the field, score a touchdown, and either go for two to win it or kick to force overtime. And Heineke throws a, a slant to Terry McLaurin. And McLaurin makes the catch in traffic and takes a wicked hit on the play. Five-yard slant, moved the sticks. I thought he was a defenseless receiver. It was not helmet to helmet, but he got hit in his helmet as a defenseless receiver. I've seen a lot less flagged. That moves the sticks for the fourth time on the drive on third down. And Washington's got it first and goal at the Tampa 9. And Tampa Bay's got no timeouts left. Now, Washington can't kneel it out because they've got to snap the ball before the two-minute warning. Gibson gains five. Then after the Tampa, uh, two-minute warning, Gibson gets uh, four, uh, gets no gain, but then gets three more down to the one-yard line on third and goal. And then came the situation that we opened the show with. Fourth and goal, 31 seconds left. What do you do? Ron Rivera did the right thing. He ran his 19th play as a handoff to Gibson, who walked essentially into the end zone for the uh, clinching score. 
Now, at that point, again, even if he misses, Washington's won the game. Washington, for all intents and purposes, won the game on the third and five from Heineke to McLaurin. That drive was an incredible drive. By the way, in the process of looking this up, I found this. Looking at at long drives, the longest drive ever recorded came in 1997 when the then Tennessee Oilers had a 13-minute and 21-second drive against the Cowboys. Basically an entire quarter. By the way, that's one of the reasons I don't like the 10-minute overtime rule. You know, they did it for safety reasons, like an extra five minutes is really going to matter. Most overtime games don't go more than 10 minutes to begin with. But the problem with the 10-minute overtime is that teams can go on 10-minute drives. And yeah, you've got timeouts and you've got a two-minute warning in overtime. But still, to me, if... It's a competitive disadvantage if you ultimately get a stop and force a field goal, but you only get the ball back with you know a minute 30 left or even two minutes left because now your chances to win the game are much less. You may have a chance to tie it with a field goal. Um, but the point of the you know giving the team a possession who holds a team to a field goal or less, it's not, you know, it's not a 50-50 equation if the team that got the first field goal took seven and a half minutes off the clock or eight minutes off the clock. I think they should go back to a 15-minute overtime. Uh, we saw a tie yesterday um, with five more minutes left in that game. It probably doesn't end in a tie. Maybe it does. Uh, but incredible drive with the game on the line with, by the way, Tampa Bay having a lot of momentum. You know, they smacked DeAndre Carter on that kickoff return at the 20-yard line. It came after Mike Evans on that third down, you know, broke free from Kendall Fuller. I have no idea if Bobby McCain had any responsibility on that play on the back end. Um, But now there was Tampa, 23-19. They had recovered a fumble, scored. Yeah, they missed the PAT, which took some wind out of their sails, but they still had the momentum there. And Washington never gives them the ball back. Incredible drive. That's number one on the list of things that I liked. Let me rip through these others. Taylor Heineke, I think, had his best game of the year. Now, with that said, he wasn't perfect. He was 26-32 for 256 yards and a touchdown. No picks. Could have been picked a few times. In fact, the six incompletions were either you know picks that weren't made or drop passes. There were early drops by Ricky Seals-Jones and by Terry McLaurin. Taylor Heineke, though, is what we've always agreed on when it comes to him. He's a gamer. He's fearless. He doesn't feel the pressure. He doesn't have nerves. And he is an athlete. He's a big-time athlete, and he is not afraid. Does he have the best arm strength? Does he have the greatest accuracy? Does he have the best decision-making ability? No. Is he a backup in this league? 100% yes. Because really what you want in a backup more than anything is a guy that's going to come in and not need you know, like lots of reps, a guy that's going to come in and believe in himself and not be afraid right from the jump, and a guy that's a gamer and can make plays, and he did. He made a ton of plays yesterday. A ton of plays. Um, Third drive of the game, third and seven versus the Blitz to Gibson for eight yards. That same drive, that first fourth down that they went for after kicking some field goals, they decided on fourth and three they're going to go for it, and they get it to McKissick, a really quick decision by him and a good throw. Quick decision and throw 
um, uh, on the um, touchdown pass to Carter. He recognized what it was. I actually think that might be his best throw. You know, that that fade, um, that leading a, a guy in man coverage to that part of the end zone, um, I think is his best throw. That was a really good catch. It was a perfect throw. Up 23-13, the throw to McLaurin against the Blitz on that drive. That was the one right before the Dax Milne fumble. Great throw. Final drive, we just went through it. The third and two scramble. The third and four to Humphreys. The second and 11 to Gibson, which set up the third and five to McLaurin. Um, really just sensational. He drew an offsides at the end of the first half as they weren't going to take a snap before the two-minute warning, and Tampa jumped offsides with really good cadence. Um, I thought that Taylor Heineke was certainly up there among the key reasons for the win. Uh, I don't know, like the we've been doing blame pie charts, credit, you know, uh, pie chart. You know, he's in that 35 to 38 percent range, and then the defense is pretty high up on the, on that list. Um, and then I think in many ways the coaching was a big part of the win yesterday as well. I'll get to that in a second. But Taylor Heineke, yeah, he had that, you know, Whitehead dropped that interception that went right into the hands of DeAndre Carter for a big play. He threw an out pattern to Carter at the end of the first half that he was lucky that it wasn't picked, and then even worse, that could have been a pick six. From deep in his end end zone, he made that third and super long throw that was nearly picked on the near sideline. Um, I thought several. Uh, I thought a few of the sacks were probably on him for holding the ball a little bit too long, especially the one where he got sacked at his own one-yard line. I thought the check down to Humphreys was available right away, but overall, Taylor Heineke in the game was an A minus and was a major reason, maybe a third uh, of the credit uh, pie chart for why they won the game. Uh, Scott Turner's on my list of things that I liked. I thought he, look, you, you know, many of you have pushed back on me throughout, throughout the year. And even last year, when I told you, I don't think Scott Turner is that bad. I think Scott Turner knows what he's doing. I mean, is he his father? Okay. Uh, no. How many people are as an offensive coordinator? I think Scott Turner's got a really good feel week in and week out about what this offense is capable of doing and where the opponent's weaknesses are. You notice they didn't run it a lot at Vita Vea, but when he left the game, they started to run it. I thought they were at him uh, at that spot. I mean, he's hard to run against. Tampa's hard to run against in general, but they stayed balanced. They stuck with the run. Gibson had lots of minus yardage plays, but also had some big runs. Uh, I love, uh, you know, against a team like Tampa to sort of spread them out. You're not going to go at Tampa all day right up the middle um, with a running game, guys, and, and have much success. He knows when, to, you know, to get the ball out of the hands of the quarterback quickly. He knows the East-West game and when it's applicable with bubbles, etc. He had a quarterback that was willing to create time, willing to scramble yesterday. I think he does a good job week in and week out with what he has, scheming people open in the pass game. I asked Ron Rivera about that a couple of weeks ago, and Rivera said he's doing a great job. You know, with that, he knows what he's doing. I thought Scott Turner called a really good game and an excellent final drive. I think he's a good play caller and a good coordinator. I don't think he's elite yet. I don't know what he's, it's, it's his first full year doing it. I think he knows what he's doing. 
I mean, that team doesn't have its, its intended starting quarterback, and I'm sure you saw the news um, yesterday, Ian Rappaport reporting that Ryan Fitzpatrick is done um, uh, for the year, will not play. Uh, no Curtis Samuel. They've had injury, you know, no Logan Thomas. We, the offense has been, in terms of the weapons it's had at, at its disposal, it's been down 40 to 50% at times. And I think Scott Turner personally deserves more credit than most of you would give him. Antonio Gibson is on the list. So powerful. Um, it's, it's my favorite part of his game. He's a powerful, punishing runner. I just I love him. I, he didn't fumble, and I just had this weird feeling at the end he was going to cough it up, and 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 Tampa was going to take over. Um, but he he had a grinded out day for sixty four yards. You know, it's strange as a team. Thirty four rushes, ninety four uh, yards, two point eight yards per carry. Gibson was twenty four for sixty four for two point seven and two touchdowns. Um, that is the. That's one of the better 2.7 per carry average days because I didn't know what that number was before I started to look at you know the, the game last night because my impression was Antonio Gibson had a good game, a really good game. He got hit on a lot of run blitzes by Devin White, who was spectacular in the game, number 45 for Tampa. What a game Devin White had. Devin White uh, had in the game – Two sacks, three quarterback hits, two tackles for losses, 13 solo tackles, 18 total. He was the guy that did not play in the playoff game last year. He was sensational for Tampa. But I thought Gibson had a good day. I thought Terry McLaurin had a good day yesterday. He dropped one early. He got hurt, had a collarbone injury, came back six catches, 59 tough yards on eight targets, including the biggest catch on one of the biggest hits of the game on that final drive. I think offensively, they were terrific on the most important down and distances. On third downs, 11 of 19. On fourth, two for two. On downs that could have taken them off the field, they were 13 for 21. That's outstanding. Conversions on third down for a team like Washington that isn't super explosive, staying on the field leads to things like yesterday. 71 offensive snaps to 47 for the Bucks. 39.08 time of possession to 20 minutes and 52 seconds, nearly a 2-1 to one time of possession advantage. When you can convert on third and fourth down and stay on the field, you may not be the best quarterback team, the best coach team, the best, you know, and most explosive teams, but you are going to be in games and have a chance. They, th- this has not been the story for much of the year, and yesterday the offense stayed on the field. And the defense got them off the field. The best defensive day of the year, led by John Allen, who is on the list of things that I liked. Allen continued this season, which to me is definitely a Pro Bowl season. I think he's in the running for All-Pro. I think John Allen is having a phenomenal season. He didn't have a sack yesterday. If you're a box score reader, you wouldn't have any clue as to his impact. It started with the first Bucks drive, third and eight, opening drive. He pressures, Brady throws early incomplete. By the way, just the first time this year that uh, the opponent's first drive was a three-and-out drive. 
the false start on the first play of the game helped a little bit. Allen nailed uh, Leonard Fournette on a third and one. Um, that was before Brady kept it on the sneak on fourth down. The interception by McCain was a play where Allen got tremendous pressure. First Tampa drive of the second half, third and three. Allen gets Brady to unload it early and incomplete. First drive, that was important. It was 16-6, to and they got him off the field. Got him off the field to start the game. Got him off the field on their first drive of this of the second half. The third down defense, the biggest Achilles heel of this team all year long. Best day of the year, four for ten on third down for the Buccaneers. They are still dead last in the league, allowing fifty five point two percent on third down. Third down. That, by the way, is eight percentage points worse than Atlanta, who's thirty first in the league. But still, yesterday huge. The takeaways in the game were real forced takeaways. The Allen pressure on the McCain and then the big hit by Curl um, and the uh, fumble recovery interception. They ruled it an interception um, by, uh, by Jackson. It was Jackson, right, who had the interception? Uh, I think it was. McCain had the first one and then Jackson had the second one on the big hit uh, by Curl. That's on the list of things that I liked. Joey Sly is on the list of things that I like. Three for three on field goals, two of them really short, didn't miss a PAT. They had a real kicker yesterday. That was important. You know, they were one for six on points in their last six red zone trips coming in, and yesterday they got points on all of them. Two for four on touchdowns, and then they had two field goals in the red zone. Um, as well. I think the the fourth and three that Rivera went for was really a product of them kicking field goals the first couple of times they were down there. Look, three points is better than none, and they weren't getting any in the previous games because kicks were getting blocked and or missed. Um, And just repeating, I thought the decision to go for the fourth and goal and the decision not to go for the PAT were excellent decisions and on my things that I liked list. On the list of things that I didn't like, much shorter this week, which is nice. Um, The end of the first half penalty on William Jackson was as stupid as stupid gets. You just can't do that. You know, you can't, you can't do that and then hope to really beat a a good team. And they did, but they got away with one there. Um, Evans was, you know, sticking his hand out, stiff arming Jackson um, on that play that was going to end the first half. The clock had ran out. Jackson gets frustrated, sticks his hand out, and doesn't realize that he's got the face mask and then lets go. It's not one of those situations. It's he's got it and he's not letting go and he's going to make Mike Evans pay for stiff-arming him. Stupid penalty. Cost him three points. Can't have that. Can't have that. By the way, at the end of the first half, uh, Bruce Arians really screwed up. He went to halftime with a timeout in his pocket. They should have called that timeout on defense. They would have had 40 additional seconds to work with. That was a big clock management error by Tampa at the end of the first half. Um, I didn't like the taunting penalty on Deron Payne, but I don't even know what it was because we never got a replay of it. That was after the McCain interception. Deron Payne was called for taunting, which uh, put him you know, way back field position-wise. That's not smart. Um, Ron Rivera told me on the, ra- uh, on the radio show Friday, he's part of the competition committee, that he's all in favor of the taunting uh, calls. I We never saw what Payne did, so I can't tell you what he did. Um Early red zone offense settling for the field goals wasn't great. The Milne fumble wasn't great. 
And then obviously the number one thing really more than anything else on the list of things that I didn't like is the Chase Young injury. It's really unfortunate. You know, the conversation that we all had and that you probably had with the people close in your life last week about Chase Young and his had-to-make-the-money comment as to why he missed OTAs, um, I told you how I felt. I have no issue at all with these players trying to leverage their situation to earn as much as they can earn. They have short careers. They are playing in a high-risk Uh, working in a high-risk profession, and it can be over in an instant. I had no issues whatsoever. And if Chase Young were my friend or my son, I would have encouraged him, strike while the iron is hot. You do everything you can do, you know, as long as it makes sense and it's part of the overall brand that you want to build, et cetera, and it's something you believe in. Um, uh, But... But your first responsibility is to your, you know, employer, your professional employer. So I would have told him, you take advantage of all these opportunities, but you got you to show up for some of those, those OTA days. But I have never had an issue with any of these players making as much money as they can possibly make. I'm not the guy, and I wasn't with uh, Robert Griffin III. I was not. I didn't like Robert uh, Griffin's, uh, Griffin III's total obsession um, with his brand building, with his personal brand building and his self-involved uh, uh, personality because what we saw is we saw it totally trumped what was important uh, as it related to the team. I'm not suggesting that Chase Young isn't a team guy at all. I am suggesting, and I did last week, that despite him making money and I want him to make all the money he can, he should have found at least one day to show up for OTAs as a team leader. What sucks about this for him is he doesn't have a chance to improve on what has been a dreadful season for him. And yesterday, I'd have to go back and look at this, but when he was in the game, I didn't see much chipping. I didn't see any doubling. I could be wrong. I saw him getting owned um, pretty much uh, throughout the the start of that game until a non-contact injury. Um, I'm a Chase Young fan. Most of you who have listened carefully and choose to hear what I say rather than choose to hear what you think I'm saying, know that not only did I advocate that they lose that game against the Giants at the end of the year so they could draft Chase Young, but I thought this was a transcendent defensive player coming into the league. And I thought he would be as important to this organization as they had had uh, player-wise in a long, long time. He did not disappoint as a rookie. The first eight games of this season were a disappointment. There is no pro football focus analytical study that will that can convince me that he had some kind of average season or a little bit better than you think it was. No, it was a bad season, a, a non-impactful season. Um, and I was looking forward to seeing whether or not he could really turn it around in the second half of the season. Uh, it looks like he won't get that chance. Um, there will be more news, I'm sure, you know, after I finish recording this podcast about whether or not it's a torn ACL. I hope it's not. If it is, players return from that all the time. And he'll be ready for next year, I would assume. Um, but he would be out for the rest of the year, obviously. Uh, we, you know, certainly hope 
uh, for the best. Um, and I thought the reaction from his teammates after the game and to him on the sideline seemed very genuine. Um, and I think that he is well-liked. I do think at the same time, both things can be true, by the way, I think there's been some frustration with the coaches and Chase Young this year. Um, but uh, he is a talent, and if it's an ACL, he'll be back. Um, you know, those ACL injuries, you come back sometimes better than ever. Uh, that's the list of the things that I did not like um, in the game. I had a couple of other um, quick observations uh, from the game. Let me go um, in, uh, uh, in chronological order. First of all, I thought uh, Washington, there was a false start on a big play to Ricky Seals-Jones on third and 11 on their second drive. I thought they missed a false start. I thought it looked like Lucas false started and they just missed it. Um, it was almost Morgan Moses-esque. Uh, um, did you see that the 13 to nothing lead was the largest lead of the season by Washington? And scoring on the first four drives of the game for Washington is something that had not happened in five years. Um, there was a, a blatant missed face mask on Landon Collins grabbing Leonard Fournette's face mask. I also thought, by the way, that the interception on the play that um, hit Godwin's foot and the ball went up in the into the air and Fuller dove for it, I actually personally thought that that was an interception. Um, they called it incomplete on the f- uh, field, and the ruling stood. I thought it was really close, so I guess the ruling on the field should have st- stood. But when I looked at it, I thought we were going to come back after commercial and get a uh, and get an interception on that. Uh, I was wrong. Um, there was a d- defensive pass interference on Delaney against Cam Sims um, in the end zone on what was a totally uncatchable ball. I thought Washington got a bit of a break on that. It was right before um, the touchdown by Gibson that made it 23-13. I mean, that ball was so far over Cam Sims's head. I mean, Wilt couldn't have gotten it, and they called defensive pass interference. That DPI, defensive hold doesn't get waved off for an uncatchable ball, but pass interference does, and that ball was not catchable. Um, I also thought on Gibson's touchdown run, the second one, where his progress was clearly stopped. It was great effort by him and the team to push him into the end zone, but I thought that one replay showed why didn't they blow the whistle? I'm glad they didn't. Um, I think that's been one of the most inconsistently called things watching NFL football all year. We get the games in which you're allowed to basically push a player um, for you know five, six seconds forward, and then we get the games in which the progress is immediately whistled stopped. Uh, it's very inconsistent, I think. Um, there you go. That's my game take. Big win for Washington. A big win that sparked off quite the locker room post-game speech from Ron Rivera. Something I will play for you when we come back right after these words from a few of our sponsors. That tells me what you guys are capable of. You just measured yourself to Goliath. All right? You just measured yourself and you found out who you are and what you're capable of. I'll tell you what. I've been waiting to say this. Victory Monday.
today. Don't get full of ourselves. Come Learn on, from this event. Learn from what we did today. Let's get better. All right, here we go. Team on three. One, two, three. Team that was Ron Rivera's post-game locker room speech to his team. I would urge all of you, um, if you get a moment, to watch it. It's available you know, at the team's website. Somebody sent it to me last night. And um, you know, the reason I would urge you to watch it is just to see his players' reaction to his locker room speech. Um, what I'm going to say to you is not meant to be kind of you know soapboxish um, or lecturing in any way because it's just really um, my reaction when I watched this this last night. Many of you know that I was um, a big fan of the hire when they hired Ron Rivera. I just thought he was a good coach at Carolina. Um, I thought his teams were always tough and hard nosed and disciplined, and so was he. Um, and I thought, you know, based on the um, respect that he had around the league, that that the team had sort of outkicked their coverage on the hire. Uh, and I still believe that. Um, I don't know how much better they could have done than Ron Rivera. Is he a great coach? No. Is the jury still out on whether or not he's the guy? Of course. Uh, it'll always be that way with anybody that gets hired. And has the pressure been on? And have I questioned a lot of what's gone on this year? Sure. He's a defensive head coach. And the bottom line is, is the defense has been a train wreck this year. It's been a major step back season um, along this, you know, rebuild of what, you know, he inherited, which was a total teardown. But when I heard last night's locker room speech and I watched it, I just for a moment, you know, thought about things that are important to me when, when I think about these guys that are, you know, in the arena, so to speak, you know, the the Teddy uh, Roosevelt um, uh, quote, you know, about, you know, uh, essentially the, the credit belongs to the man who is in the arena, whose, you know, face is scarred by sweat and blood. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's the, the credit doesn't go to the person who sits there and critiques the man in the arena. Um, that's not the exact quote. Uh, most of you will know the quote I'm talking about. I don't have it off the top of my head. I actually do have another one, though, that I remembered this morning as I was doing the radio show. Um, and I actually went back to try to, to find exactly what it was. It was something that somebody had said to me along the way, and I don't even know who said this. Um, but it was something to the effect of, if you can't win, make the guy ahead of you break the record. Like, if you're a competitor, you give it your all every single time, and if you don't actually finish with more points than the opposition, make sure the opposition was really good. So anyway, um, I got sidetracked there. I, I talk about competing and competitors a lot because I think many people in the world roll their eyes when they hear people talk about things like, well, they're still fighting. They're still competing. And I've said about their last three games, you can tell they haven't quit on Ron Rivera. They're still fighting. They're competing. And that's important. And to me, the rest of the season, the most interesting part, you know, over the last three weeks, I've said is to see how his team responds to him. Last year, they didn't bail at one and five or two and seven. And I think it's um, an absolute sign of good coaching and a respect for the man who is your coach. Um, and a respect for the profession to a certain degree, when you see teams not bail on a season, when they can easily bail. We see it all the time in sports. We see it all the time. And by the way, these are high-level competitors. 
But, you know, a lot of people will roll their eyes at that. And I've always said before, and it's just an observation, I think a lot of those people that roll their eyes at things like that are people that have never competed in anything. And I'm not knocking that. Many people are much happier and much more comfortable in sort of a straight line employee, nine to five, um, you know, not having pressure on them in any part of their life. I'm not knocking that at all. Okay. I'm just saying there's a big difference. People who have competed in business, people who compete, and many of you out there every day in selling something, all of you that have competed on teams and sports, you kind of have a sense of what it felt like yesterday and how inspiring that is to a certain degree for a group of guys and a coach who are backed into a corner to beat the reigning Super Bowl champions and and the thrill of that. Um, I just, I enjoyed that. And I enjoy him a little bit. Again, I'm not sold that he's the right guy. I don't know if there's ever going to be a right guy for here. I don't. But he has had one thing that's been consistent about him, and that is people who have played for him respect the hell out of him. Other coaches around the league respect the hell out of him. This guy beat cancer last year, coached a football team that was struggling, and he's getting arrows slung at his back in every direction as they're 1-5 and five and he's fighting cancer, and somehow they turn that season around. I'm not suggesting they're going to do it th- this year, but there is a competitor a big-time competitor in Ron Rivera. By the way, I think it's what he loves about Taylor Heineke. I think in many ways, um, this is who he is. He's been kind of an overachiever. Maybe not the greatest X's and O's coach of all time. Um, Maybe not super high intellect, um, but a grinder and a worker and somebody who can motivate, somebody who can lead. And, um, you know, while we, and you know, it's part of what I do and it's part of what you guys do too, in conversations about the team, I think we miss out on the journey that they're on this day to day, you know, journey where they're not getting results and they're in a profession where their performance is being picked apart every single day by people who have, in most cases, no idea what's going on. And, you know, for a moment yesterday, you could see and you could hear a lot of that come out in that post-game speech. I loved that post-game speech. And I like him. You know, I have him on every week on the radio show, and I've had a couple of chances after we've recorded, because we recorded the interview um, after uh, uh, their practice on Thursday, and then I run it Friday morning. It's not always advantageous for me to do it that way, but whatever. I have the head coach on, and it's good for the radio station, and it's good for my show to have him on. But he and I have had a couple of conversations after we finish recording. And, you know, I do have this sense that, um, you know, he's in it, man. He is in the battle. And he's in a battle that he had no idea would be this fierce with, with the, the, the company that he decided to join. Uh, I don't look, a lot of this was unpredictable. Some of it was very predictable because we've been watching it day to day for 22 years now. Um, but he doesn't strike me as a guy that's going to bail on this. He strikes me as a guy that's going to finish it. And even if it doesn't work out, 
um, he's going to make the other guy set a record to beat him. Uh, anyway, that was my thought on listening to that. And, you know, I, I'm rooting – I'm not nearly as passionate about the team. I've said that many times to all of you um, in recent years. Um, but I am uh, always a sucker for big-time competitors, people who hate to lose, um, people who stay the course uh, like I think he's doing right now. So I am rooting for him, and I'm rooting for the team. I mean, you know, even my son said yesterday, um, God, for somebody who doesn't care as much as you used to, you seem to be caring during this game. Uh, yeah, I was into it a little bit. I'm glad they got that win yesterday. And it's going to be quite the emotional, you know, return to Charlotte on Sunday to face, by the way, Carolina with Cam Newton at quarterback. I don't know if Cam Newton's going to start. He only played four plays in the game yesterday, two touchdowns, ran for one and threw for one. And the one that he ran, I hope you've seen the highlight of him, you know, ripping off his helmet and, and screaming, I'm back. I'm back. He was flagged 15 yards, but they blew out Arizona, an Arizona team that started Colt McCoy, and Colt McCoy did not play as well uh, as he had played the previous week against uh, San Francisco. Uh, But big spot Sunday. I mean, 1 o'clock game. They're a three-point underdog. Carolina's 5-5. They've got a very good defense. I think they're a well-coached team. By the way, I've heard stuff about Matt Rule not loving the pros and maybe wanting to go back to college. And, you know, the Penn State job very likely um, could be open if James Franklin ends up getting the the SC job. I think there's a chance he will get the SEC job. Um, But Matt Rule is a Penn State graduate. Um, So would he go back to Penn State? It's where he started his career as a volunteer assistant in 1998 after what two years in the pros I don't know I think he's a good coach I think Joe Brady his offensive coordinator is a good coach uh anyway um the rest of the NFL real quickly I mean Dallas's win amazing that you know one week zero points with five minutes to go the next week 43 36 and a half um The Titans are really interesting to me. They held on to beat the Saints 23-21. The Saints missed two extra points in the game, and they got really screwed on a um, a roughing the passer uh, penalty on a huge Tennessee drive. The Titans have the best record in the AFC. Um, They're not the most dynamic team, you know, especially without Derrick Henry. Um, I don't know what to make of the Titans. I just think they're well-coached and they don't beat themselves. You know, they don't commit turnovers. They don't commit a lot of penalties. They let the other team self-destruct week in and week out. It just seems to go that way. I think they're, I think Vrabel's doing a phenomenal job um, in Tennessee. But I could see Tennessee, you know, being the number one seed and being bounced in their first playoff game easily. Uh, what is the deal with the Cleveland Browns? It's like if Nick Chubb doesn't play, they get blown out. The Browns got blown out, and I'm going to get to the Patriots here in a moment, 45-7. to They lost to the Cardinals 37-14. to They lost to the Chargers. They gave up 47 to them. I thought they were a good defensive team. Um, yesterday, no Nick Chubb, and the Patriots beat them 45-7. to Mac Jones, 19 of 23 for 198 yards, three touchdowns, and Ramondre Stevenson, the guy that actually had a really good game against Washington, I think, in the preseason, 
uh, ran for 100 yards. All of a sudden, the Patriots, here they come. Four out of five, four straight, five out of six, as I mentioned, losses to the Bucks and the Cowboys in super close games. You don't think they can win the division? They still have both of their games with the Bills left to go. Uh, the Philadelphia Eagles went to Denver. They win 30-13. to There was a big play at the end of the third quarter. Denver was approaching um, a potential game-tying score. They fumbled the ball. Darius Slay picked it up, ran it back for a touchdown. The Eagles uh, go to uh, mo- roll to a 30-13 to win over Denver. The Eagles have won two of their last three. Listen to their rushing totals in their last three games. 236 yards rushing against the Lions in a 44-6 route. All right, not that impressive. Last week against the Chargers, they rushed for 176 yards in a 27-24 loss. And then yesterday against a defense that completely, completely shut down the Dallas Cowboys a week ago, they rushed for 214 yards. Jordan Howard has been phenomenal. Since he uh, since he rejoined the Eagles, Jalen Hurts is the true true dual threat quarterback. You know, um, a true dual threat quarterback. Fourteen carries, fifty three yards. Oh, also threw for a buck seventy eight. And I've been telling you about the Eagles since the beginning of the year. I like their roster. I don't know anything about their coaching staff. I like Jalen Hurts. Okay, I'm not sold on Jalen Hurts as a long term starter or franchise quarterback. But they play this week at home against the Saints, a Saints team that is kind of reeling, two straight losses, you know, injuries on their offense. Really good defensive team, though. Excellent defensive team. But then listen to what the Eagles have the rest of the way. They're four and six right now. They have the Giants twice, they have Washington twice, they have the Jets, and they have a game against the Cowboys at home in the final game of the year, a Cowboys team that at that point may have everything seeding-wise locked up. Who knows? I think the Eagles have a really good chance to make a run here to the postseason. I am rooting for them to win more than seven games. That was my – I had three big prop bets before the year. I had the Eagles over seven, the Cowboys over nine and a half, and Washington under eight and a half. Um – the Lions and Steelers tie game. Their kicker missed a kick in overtime. No Ben Roethlisberger. Mason Rudolph was in that game. Um, uh, talked about the Panthers win. They really are good on defense. Uh, Aaron Rodgers returns. Both he and Russell Wilson looked really, really, um, you know, off. I mean, Wilson for sure. Rodgers even so. A um, couple of big takeaways from the Packers, 17-0 win over Seattle, though. Number one, the Packers' defense is excellent. Number two, A.J. Dillon. Um, there might be a little lost if Aaron Jones is out with an injury, but God, is A.J. Dillon a tough runner, big-time runner. He was one of those backs when he came out of B.C. that I loved in that draft. Um, Seattle falls to 3-6. and six. Did you know that the Minnesota Vikings, the Minnesota Vikings are the only team in the league – to have led every single game they've played in by seven points or more. They've had a seven-point or more lead in each of their nine games. They are four and five. They beat the Chargers yesterday 27-20. to 20. Um, We've talked about them before. Their five losses are by three points in overtime, a point on a missed field goal, uh, seven to, to Cleveland, four to Dallas, and three to the Ravens in overtime. They've been in three overtime games this year. I actually think of the teams in the NFC battling for the the two wild card spots. I think Minnesota is the best team, 
But I think they've got the worst and most brutal schedule. They still play Green Bay twice. They still play the Rams. They play, I think, the Steelers. Um, And so getting to eight or nine wins with that schedule could be difficult. But I think, really, they're the best team. Um, Man, they targeted Justin Jefferson yesterday. Jefferson had nine catches for 143 yards. Kirk threw for 294 um, he doesn't throw interceptions uh, at all. Um, I think it's, it's 18 touchdowns, two picks now through nine uh, games uh, this season. And he hasn't thrown a pick, I think, since early October uh, in a game. He did have a, a controversial fumble that kind of looked like an incomplete pass. The Chargers are, are really interesting. You know, uh, the AFC West let Kansas City hang around. Now Kansas City's got the lead. And the Chargers... I love their team, and I love Justin Herbert. I love a lot about him, but they've now lost three of four, but three tough teams that they lost to, the Ravens, the Patriots, and the Vikings. Um, uh, you know, Three of those games, or, or two of those losses, were one-score games. Uh, the team they beat, the Eagles, they needed a field goal at the gun from Hopkins. Um, the Chargers and the Steelers, I think, are the Sunday night game this coming week, and that'll be a big game as far as – uh, you know, wild card um, ramifications. Now, Pittsburgh actually with the tie yesterday, more likely than not, won't have any tiebreakers to worry about unless another team ties. Um, they're they're either going to have a better record or a worse record than teams they're tied with. Uh, but, you know, another crazy day in the NFL. The Patriots are the team right now that really – I think they. I think they're right there with Buffalo in the AFC East. Those two games they've they've got against Buffalo in December are going to be really interesting. Um, real quickly, Caps won. They're rolling four wins in a row. The Wizards won big the other night without Bradley Beal against Orlando. I mean, what an impressive win uh, that was. They play the Pelicans tonight um, at home. They're only a four and a half point favorite against a two and twelve team. I think that reeks a little bit tonight. Just remember I said that. Um, and uh, Maryland football lost. Virginia lost to Notre Dame. And Maryland football, man, they – too many mistakes. You know, they just are a team – they had 13 penalties in the game. I, they just cannot stop hurting themselves uh, with penalties. Um, they had drive-killing penalties. They had a turnover by, two, uh, by Leah – um, and in the red zone, uh, they moved the football against Michigan State all day long. They just couldn't, you know, finish most of the time, and they couldn't stop Michigan State. The Terps are now five and five, and they get two more opportunities. They get Michigan this week. They're fourteen and a half point underdogs, and then they're at Rutgers for bowl eligibility, more likely than not. And ironically, Rutgers is five and five as well. They play at Penn State, so it'll probably be Rutgers and Maryland um, in uh, at Rutgers. Uh, in the final game of the year for a bowl spot uh, out of the Big Ten. It's, it's the way it's shaping up um, right now. Rutgers uh, crushed Indiana uh, yesterday. Um, what else from the weekend? Maryland basketball uh, won uh, a well-coached Vermont team. Um, I thought that was a solid win. You Terp fans that, you know, I, I some of you uh, with the turge bashing because they were life and death with Vermont. You, Vermont's going to probably win their league 
And that's a well-coached veteran team with lots of seniors and fifth-year seniors. And it's early November, and Maryland's got a bunch of new players. Trust me, that was a solid win. Turge made some really good defensive adjustments, in, uh, in particular in the second half. They held them to 5 of 27 over the final 19 and a half minutes of that game. Uh, they played George Mason um, Wednesday night, another local, but they're, they're 3-0. and And I wanted to end the show with this. My favorite sporting event of the weekend was Friday night's UCLA-Villanova game at Pauley Pavilion. You just don't get enough of these big heavyweight college basketball matchups on home floors enough. And to see that kind of atmosphere at Pauley Pavilion in November between the number two Bruins and the number four Villanova uh, team, I, I just, it was a great game. Uh, UCLA was down 10 in the second half, came back, forced overtime, won in overtime, 86 to 77. You know, all of those guys from uh, the Final Four team, I'm realizing now, I think I did talk about this on my podcast with Jay Gruden the other day. It was just a great game. And, and they should do more of this in college hoops. I did not see the Texas Gonzaga game. I didn't. Uh, that was played in Spokane. And Gonzaga apparently rolled Texas and drew Timmy. I think I uh, had 37 and was like 19 of 22 from the floor. Uh, I think this is going to be an interesting college basketball season. Um, I'm obviously super into the Terps right now, and I loved what Fats Russell provided the other day. I loved Julian Reese and what he provided. Um, yeah, uh, I think I touched on everything that I want to touch on. So that's that's the show for today. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't. really helps us. Rate us and review us, especially on Apple. Thanks. Back tomorrow with Tommy. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.